Welcome to the WeGo Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today, we talk to Josh Bowen, class of 2017, platform engineer for Cummins Incorporated. Josh will share with us how he made the leap from WeGo to the honors program at COD, to UIC's Granger School of Engineer, and now is creating power solutions for one of America's elite engineering firms. Joining us today is Josh Bowen from the class of 2017. Josh, what do you do? I am a design engineer for Cummins. So I, uh, yeah, I work on engines. Josh, take us back. When did you start becoming fascinated with all things math and engineering? Uh, When did that begin? That's, that's tough. I think it's weirdly, it's kind of been my whole life in a way, like, like, for example, I knew I was good at math in like second grade, you know, where like we'd play around the world and uh, just fun games like that. And I was always like, oh man, math is so fun. Like all the, the, the geeky things like that. Um, and it just kind of developed until I got to high school. And then in college, it like moving into college, it was like, Oh no, this is just, you know, what I enjoy doing and what I'm good at. So it's, it's just kind of been immersion and just doing it a bunch. So where, tell us about the path of how, what, where did you go after West Chicago high school? Yeah. So I did, um, I did two years at the college of DuPage. Um, so they have this really awesome program called pathways, which, um, if you're not familiar, definitely check it out. Um, but, um, the way the program works is you do two years of undergrad there uh, and you get all your gen eds out of the way, um, things that you would, you know, take it anyway uh, at like a, a four-year university. Um, but you take them in much smaller classes. So instead of like a lecture hall of like a couple thousand, it's 30 kids in a room with a teacher and really helps you get the fundamentals down. So I did I did that for two years. Um, and then I transferred to the University of Illinois where I graduated with my bachelor's. Now, Josh, even when you were at uh, COD, I remember you and I had coffee once and you were telling me about some really cool research that you were able to work on uh, at COD. Let's start with that. Like, what were some of the kind of initial labs that you were working on that were kind of helping you prep for engineering at COD? There's there's a lot of cool different opportunities at COD. I know a lot of the cool labs that we did were in like the physics labs, uh, the electronics labs and things like that. Um, so just getting to, you know, understand all the fundamentals of like, here's how circuits work. Uh, here's how, um, maybe I remember doing something space time related in one of my physics classes where it was like, well, actually, if you traveled at the speed of light for five years, you'd be two years younger or something, you know, insane along those lines. Um, and, and stuff like that. Um, so 
that was that was definitely very cool. Now, when you're in the lab, how much of what you do is kind of autonomous, which is like, you know, I had this idea, I'm going to test this out or, or versus how much is that it's prescribed by the professor that you have to kind of go through that particular lab work? Uh, I would say anything that's class related is very much prescribed by the teacher where it's like, you need to make this, these things happen to prove that you're proficient. So if, if your task is to like make a circuit so that this fan spins, then you should do that. But if you get into like independent research, um, then that's when you get the best of both worlds where you get the cool lab equipment um, combined with what do I think will happen if I do this and, and the freedom to actually, you know, explore, which I think is cool. Do you remember what your first experiment was that where you're able to kind of tinker around? Weirdly enough, it didn't come at COD. This was something I did at U of I. Um, I did independent research for uh, an agricultural engineering professor. Um, and he had me rebuild an old tractor dyno, which is um, dynamometers are used to, to measure engine speed and, and torque. Um, and so we had an old one in the department from like the 80s that had never fully worked. Um, and so he, he basically said, have fun, fix this for me. And if you need to order parts, let me know. Um, so, uh, that was, that was my first foray into like, man, I really can just kind of mess around and really see how these parts work together and like how the order of operations for assembly and all these, these interesting, you know, mechanical getting my hands dirty of, you know, how a real product is made. So let me let me kind of uh, pin that thought a little bit more. So you have this old dyno, if I'm saying it correctly, right? Yeah. And how do you know what's how it's clearly not functional anymore. So how do you then find a way to, I guess, reverse engineer? What's your entry point to know where the point of, uh, let's say, uh, disconnect is where it's not functional anymore. How, how do you go about problem solving that with a piece of technology that you've never seen before? Uh, and, and how do you kind of build towards understanding how it should work and then then know how to replace the parts if they need replacing versus maybe just a type of, you know, maybe maybe it's just it needs grease or maybe it just needs, you know, yeah. something, you know, it's like an old Nintendo game. You just need to blow on it. <laughs> uh, it, kind of, um, it get fixed. How do you go about the process of something like that? Yeah, that's a that's an interesting thought, I guess. For me, it's kind of just, you know, play around with it until something makes sense. Um, so I, I always just start with the bolts I can see, right? Like, <laughs> just take those out and take it apart. Uh, so I fully tore it down. Uh, I had it disassembled into every piece. And I made notes of, like, here's how you take it apart. Here's how you put it back together. Um and some stuff, you know, it's like visibly broken, right? Where you, like, I could see like certain oil lines or water lines are broken, things like that. And it's like, okay, clearly I can go through a manual and reorder this piece. Um, but some stuff, it's more, it, you're like looking for traces. Weirdly, it's like, um, I can see that there's a lot of wear on this drum uh, on the inside here. Like, maybe that's an issue. Maybe... What causes that? Oh, it looks like oil pressure pushes something like a break against the drum. Maybe I should look at the oil pressure, you know, and just kind of um, making a, a mental checklist of like, oh, here's everything I can see that's broken. 
are they related? Uh, are they causal? Are they just coincidental? Um, and yeah, like, like I said, just getting, getting it as a part as you can and then rebuilding it is the best way to understand how it works. I really like that kind of, kind of heuristic that you used right there, which is like trying to look at like, you know, is it causal or, you know, is it, you know, I thought that was really interesting how you expressed that. So you made the transition from COD to U of I. What was yeah. that like? It was crazy. Um, it is so different um, one place to another. I think the biggest shock for me personally was that I no longer lived at home, um, which is a staggering difference, right? Like now I live in an apartment with four of my friends and I'm fully just responsible for myself. And that's in, you know, in its own way is difficult to navigate. Um, and, you know, pile on top of that, the new opportunities and people, and it's just kind of a full cultural reset in terms of what I understand and, and what's comfortable. Um, so, that's not to say, you know, it was bad or anything. I loved it. I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, to be honest, it, I think I nailed the split of two years of, of un undergrad at a community college that was really affordable, um, followed by two years at uh, a university where uh, I got to explore and, and have all the fun resources that come with that. What was the first thing that felt most stable once you made to, uh, to U of I? I joined a club uh, at U of I. Um, uh, I guess they're called RSOs, Registered Student Organizations, I think. Um, but I joined the Baja team, um, which was kind of my, um, the focal point of my uh, U of I time in that it didn't change, right? It was a, it was a club that I could always go to. Um, and, and I guess for those that don't know, Baja is we build, uh, from scratch an off-road race car every year and then take it to competitions and race with it in different events. So like rock crawls, uh, acceleration events, and then a four hour endurance race, uh, just to see how many laps you can complete, uh, on a, course that's designed to break your car what was your so what was your favorite design uh with baja um i did a couple um i um i actually designed our rear hubs the last year um so basically the piece that transmits the power from your drive shaft into the wheel uh is called the hub uh, and so i got to work a lot on that um, and, and that was a cool engineering challenge because it's like, I need something that's strong, but also light enough to be on a car. Right. And, and so having those kind of constraints, uh, is what makes designing easy. I think, you know, knowing the parameters that you have to fit in. Yeah. I mean, it's, what was the, so when you said you had to design it, what, how did you have access to materials? Like, was this something that you could like, well, I know what my material is, so I can just 3d print it. Or is it something that you purchased when, when you thought about how that would be the appropriate fit? How did you fashion it? One benefit is that there's a lot of precedent. Um, this, this team's been around for a long time. And, and so there's a lot of records of what has and hasn't worked. Um, so generally, um, 
we know how things get made. Um, I will say I also acted as our business lead. So I was in charge of like all of our, our company and corporate sponsorships and, and machining, you know, sponsorships and things like that. So I had a pretty good relation with Petting House, which is the company that ended up making the hubs for us. So it's an, once you know the, like, for example, I think the hubs are made of aluminum. Um, once you know that and you know who's machining them, it's just a matter of purchasing it, getting it sent to them, and then getting it the machined part back from them. Um, and that's, it's kind of, it. parts of it are a well-oiled machine just because it's been happening for so long. It sounds like a really fun club that you were a, a part of there. What was some of the other, while you were at U of I, um, you had two years there. Were, now when do you start getting into like maybe internships? What was that, the first one that you were able to kind of secure? My first internship was between sophomore and junior year. So between the split from uh, COD to U of I. Um, so I interned for Eaton for uh, my for that summer and then the summer after between junior and senior year um yeah that i worked for them first as a test engineer and then as a design engineer how much like autonomy did they give you during your internship there like was it kind of like no you're going to do this or were you able to kind of also tinker there as well um i think i got lucky in that i got a lot of leeway especially as a test engineer um they you know, they had projects for me, but I, I think something that a lot of companies enjoy and, and look for in their interns is that you're willing to like, you know, kind of stick your nose in other things that you think are interesting and uh, find a way to be a part of it. Um, so I started out by building carts that would have uh, that you could roll around and had all the necessary, you know, test equipment on them to um, to run different like pressure tests or things like that. Um, and I eventually just got interested in in the tests that we were running. Um, so I don't I don't know how much I can speak to the actual tests uh, in terms of you know confidentiality, but getting to be a part of you know, oh, uh, I can, um, I get to just learn more about this. And now suddenly I'm in charge of some of these parts and I get to see the cycle counts and, and how the code works that actually runs these tests and the cycling that takes place. It's, uh, I got to just kind of, you know, like I said, stick my nose in things that I thought were interesting and get to be a part of it. Josh, what would you say is the balance between having to understand software versus how that then shows up in the actual hardware element of what you do? What is like, because I mean, there's some engineering that might be entirely, or now I would say entirely, but more balanced towards one end versus the other. Um, what is it that you, um, that you find, and you, this could be with like what you do at Eaton or even what you do now. Um, I think it's easier to speak about it in, in my current role. Um, but <laughs> the answer is, it really depends on what you do. Um, you have to understand on some very basic level, like, like some coding, right? You have to, uh, you have to take, you know, I guess you have to at least understand if your part has code running through it, how does that work? Um, 
but you also maybe in, in terms of software, like I need to know how to use Creo, right? I need to know how to use these 3D modeling tools in order to come up with a design and then maybe analyze my design before it, it ever gets made into hardware that you get to play with. Um, so it's kind of a, for me, any of the software that I use currently is a stepping stone to hardware. So, so that I know that the part that I will be getting will do what I expect it to do. What's, what's the learning curve then where you have to be able to at least read code, but then understand a specific maneuverability within that software? Like, like how long does it take you to, to understand that one particular program that you just mentioned there? Was that something that you had exposure to at undergrad? So it was very easy. And is that kind of like an industry standard or was that something that you had to learn once you got to your, your new job? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, for me, at I had a lot of experience to Creo um, pre my current position. So in undergrad, I, we actually used it on Baja to design our parts, right? So that was the three D modeling that we or three D modeling system that we used. Um, I will say, going from no knowledge uh, to being able to use it is steep. Uh, it, it takes. It took me a long time. Um, it's not, uh, it's not maybe the most intuitive. Um, but what's cool is that once you know one, it's easy, it's easier to learn the rest, right? So I could go from, um, Creo to something like SolidWorks or something like, uh, uh, I'm totally blanking on the other name. So that kind of falls apart, but I could go to SolidWorks <laughs> or yeah. in the same way of coding, like, uh, I could go like once you know C maybe then you learn Python, maybe then you learn Java. And you know, maybe you know the 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 specific characters aren't the same, but the the general syntax of like here's how something works and, and I can understand how to think in a in a way to code carries over. Now, was that something that you learned formally? in school or was that something that was kind of a hobby that you kind of knew before you started your coursework? Um, both of them I learned in school, weirdly enough. I took a class on C++ and then I took a um, another later coding class where we um, designed and built our own balancing two-wheeled robots, um, which was very cool. And, and we got to code those. Um, and then in terms of like 3D modeling, Though that also came from a lot of my design classes. Um, so it's getting you comfortable with that software. There's so many different you know, fields of engineering and you, you kind of found yourself in design engineering. Were there any other ones that kind of tugged at you and say, I don't know, maybe you should check this one out. Cause I know you did work with uh, agricultural uh, engineering. Mm -hmm. Were there any other ones that almost uh, kind of got you in a tractor beam to kind of go over there? Um, I, I kind of think I've always wanted to do mechanical engineering. I think something about, I don't know, the way it was always explained to me was that it was the broadest of the engineerings in that if you're a mechanical engineer, you can kind of do any engineering you'd like. Um, and, and for me, that seemed to fit. I think I almost went chemical for a little bit and then I took chemistry too. And I was like, yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> I will not be, I will not be part of that. 
Yeah, I, that's something I always, uh, whenever I, I hear is like either people get the logic behind organic chem or. Oh yeah, out, no so chance. <laughs> usually, it's usually that seems to be the choke point with that. So senior year, you're you're kind of getting close to kind of wrapping up, you know, what you want to do. Is there a, a final like thesis project that you work on at U of I for engineering? Like what's the exiting kind of result or project uh, that you work on in, in the engineering program there? Yeah, so so U of I has um, this awesome line of design classes, um, starting with its ME 170 and then 270, 370, and 470. And that's like, you. the idea is that you take one a year um, as a design course throughout all four years. And, and it's something that they're really proud of and, and for good reason. Um, but your ME 470 is senior design. And so... The way that works um, is basically there's a there's a huge list of company sponsored projects to work on, um, and you kind of get to you know you fill out a form of like what you're interested in, and then if you know um, someone that you'd be interested in working with, you can I think specify the teammate, um, and then you get placed on a team that solves that particular issue. So. Oh, weirdly, I don't know if I can talk about mine too much. Um, <laughs> you're very, you're very uh, clandestine. Work no, it's, that you got, it's Mr. upsetting. Yeah. I think, I think I can. I don't, yeah. I don't know that there's any patents out on it. But we worked on a on a hand crank wheelchair. So a big problem with a lot of wheelchairs is uh, uh, arthritis in like the rotator cuff, um, just because the motion. If you think about you know using a wheelchair. It's oh, repetitive yeah. and awkward, um, and it's not really designed the way, like, ergonomically, right? Like, it doesn't make sense for your arms to move like that a lot. Um, so uh, we designed a wheelchair uh, that was uh, hand crank powered uh, to, to better fit. Um, it, it had some gears in it, and you could, you know, crank the, the, the handle, and that would transfer power to the actual wheel. Um and it, it was designed so that your your arms instead of um, instead of having your palms facing inward, they would face behind you for a more natural grip. Um, and I actually got to work. Someone on our team um, uh, used a wheelchair um, and and was uh, physically handicapped, and he was basically our, our touchstone of like, are we doing a good job? Like, what do you think? And and so that was a really cool experience um yeah what a cool project it's one of those experiences i think that you only get at like a larger university like that i guess i shouldn't i I shouldn't say that for certain but i do think that 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 experience is unique to you know places that have the resources to do that um and and so i think that's it's a very unique opportunity of, of something to be a part of yeah, yeah, two unique love letters to uh, COD and uh, U of I of what yes. they what they meant for your kind of cultivation of engineering for for sure. So you graduate, and then how did what was the job market like, and how did you uh, find your current position? Oh, it was so stressful. Uh, <laughs> I know. I guess all of my friends had jobs before I did, which was terrifying. Um, it. In a pandemic, I think it was even more difficult to to understand like 
no, just keep applying, like just keep looking for cool opportunities and, and interviewing the best you can. Um, so the way it happened for me, I did not have this job until almost the end of the summer. Um, I, uh, I interviewed a bunch of places and ended up not hearing back until I found this position. Um, just, I think, oh no, you know how I got this position was, uh, my research professor, uh, put in a good word for me and uh, he, cause he had previously worked at Cummins. Um, he put in a good word, told me I should apply. Um, and it was after that, the process was smooth sailing. I had a couple interviews and got the job. Now, where are they based out of? Uh, They're based out of Columbus, Indiana, uh, which is the second most famous Columbus in the Midwest. Um, <laughs> they have, uh, but they, they're worldwide. So we're a, a global company, which is pretty cool. Now, is that because you said you work remotely? Do you still, are you uh, back in Illinois or are you in Indiana? No, I actually, I live in Indiana now, uh, which is wild. I have my own one bedroom apartment that I live in. Um, and it's, it's pretty cool. It's very different. What, what, roughly, where is Columbus in Indiana, in, in proximity to Indianapolis or yeah. Lafayette? Like, where, where is it? It's about 40 minutes south of Indianapolis. Okay. So. Now, um, so to the what are the type of things that Cummins uh, engineers? Like, what, what are the projects that you're working on that you can roughly sketch out for us? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, – so I, I am a component level designer. Um, so when you think about all of the different parts that exist on an engine, uh, everything from camshafts to crankshafts to intake manifolds, anything like that uh, is something that I could design. Um, and, and basically my work is coming up with... Um, new ways to make these parts and make them better uh, and cheaper and more efficient uh, for engines that are not released yet. Is so that, is that vague enough? Yeah, no, me? that's perfect. No, obviously you get, yeah, obviously you're, yeah, you're not getting into the dimensions and measurements of, uh, of all that, but, but that's gotta be a really unique challenge, which is like, you know, obviously in these component parts that you're describing, you are, standing on the shoulders of you know generations of yeah. other engineers that have thought about this same problem of how do I make this more efficient, lighter, cheaper, and all of that. What's the, what's the first thing that you look at to reimagine the approach to one of these components? Is it material? <laughs> Is it like, what, what's the first kind of like thread on the sweater that you start pulling on to kind of figure out if there's any there there? The, well, okay. The first step is hubris, right? The first step is going, <laughs> oh no, I can do that. Um, which <laughs> is insane when you're right. You think about how many people have, have done this before you to just go, mm, no, I think I got it. Uh, it's crazy. Um, so that's, that's, you know, step zero, I guess. Step one is read, right? So everything has been meticulously documented and, there are pages and pages of um, design 
reviews and things like that, where people talk about, here's why I did what I did. Here's, you know, some of the constraints that we had. Um, and, uh, understanding how you got to where you are is before, before you can change anything is something you should know. Um, and then after that, uh, it's, it's just how creative can you be, right? So maybe I change the geometry in such a way that it's stronger in the directions that I need it to be, um, and ultimately just uses less material, right? Less material is cheaper and, and that's better. Um, maybe like you said, there is a, um, there's a material that's uh, lighter, stronger, you know, the, the unobtainium material that is just <laughs> perfect for this application, right? Um, it's, yeah, it's just how creative can you be? What does a design engineer do as a hobby when you're, it sounds like your hobby is your job. I, you know what I mean? Because like you're, you're creating things, you're you know, doing something that's uh, always kind of creating and finding a new puzzle to test and find out. Uh, what, what does an en- a design engineer do to, to, as a hobby? I guess personally, I think I'm different from, uh, and not to be like, I'm different than other engineers, but like, you know, a lot of engineers I think are introverted um, and, and I'm, I'm more of an extrovert. So for me, sitting behind a computer working on design things is, is taxing. Um, so I need to go out and, and do things and, and, you know, meet people. So, um, uh, I've started volunteering. Uh, there's a, there's a bike shop near me, um, that, uh, I've started volunteering at that's, uh, you know, taking apart bikes and, and putting them back together. That's a, it's like a nonprofit, um, bike shop. Um, I'm trying to get to volunteer at an animal shelter, um, that would be cool. Um, and then physical activity. So, you know, again, sitting behind a, a computer all day is, uh, not great for the physique. Um, so finding time to go to the gym or go, you know, specifically playing sports is one that scratches both itches, right? So, uh, playing basketball, uh, is a way to both meet people and be active, right? So, so things like that. Um, just getting out and, and trying to be active in the community. And yeah. So what's a typical day like then for you? Uh, because if you do, how often can you go to your office at this point? Or is it all remote at this point? Because in, in theory, you started this job remotely. Uh, that must have been its own kind of challenge because like any company that's big enough, there's a culture to that company and you have to yeah. kind of learn how to do it the, that particular way. Um, what was that learning curve like and, and and what would a typical day like be like for you as well? Oh, I'm, I'm still on that learning curve. I mean, it's not, it's very strange starting remotely. And like you said, you're right. It's, it's hard to get to know people when you don't really interact with them. Um, So, so that's been tough. Um, the, the office is, uh, I think open on necessity basis, right? So for example, like my internet went out the other day, so I had to quickly scramble to like, you know, shower and put on nice clothes so that I could go into the office and and work. Um, but I think a typical day for me, um, I'll pretty much roll out of bed and, and into, into my chair with, with a cup of coffee um, and start work at eight. Um, and I'll basically work eight till five, you know, take a lunch break, 
take a couple stretch breaks. Um, and then, uh, after work, I'll either, I'll generally go to the gym and then find a way to, to interact with, with some of my friends. Um, so maybe that's video games, maybe that is playing sports. Um, I try and use my, I try and have a, a an aggressive work life balance where if it's, you know, if it's at five thirty and you know, I'm, I'm like, you know what, I need to just stop. I think that's something that, you know, I, I, I need to do for myself. Um, so I try and, I try and cut it off and, and find ways to disconnect and, and, you know, have, have a life outside of it. So as a desi- design engineer right now, um, what's the next, I mean, is there, do you stay a design engineer or do you become a project lead or like if that's, cause I mean, you just started, what's the next kind of progression in the career of a design engineer? That is a question I've been asking myself too. I, d- I don't know. Um, I, I think I ultimately would like to end up in sort of a project lead position. Um, I think that's what I what I see myself doing ultimately. But in terms of like the intermediary steps, I have no idea. I think, I think the only way I'm going to find out is kind of just nose to the grindstone and just, you know, continue to, to do good work until something happens, you know? And that's kind of, I, I guess that's just kind of how I've lived my life is, is just like, ah, something will happen at some point. Just keep going. Um, yeah, with, is when things in, in theory kind of come back to a a normal where you can go back into the office and, and all that, do you, do you get to go to travel to like, let's say where these parts would be rendered, uh, and actually see, uh, the actual processing and the manufacturing of this, which is that something that you get to oversee the actual creation uh, of the thing that you design? And is that something that's done in Indiana? Is that something that's outsourced? What's, what's that like? Um, so I've only been working for three months, but I'll give you my best understanding of it. Um, (laughs) The way, the way that I understand it is um, because third-party companies make a lot of parts for us, we're not so much involved in the manufacturing, but I do know that like, for example, let's say we were to put together like a prototype of something. Uh, I think there are opportunities to, you know, be hands-on. I know that there's a, we have an engine plant in, uh, I'm going I'm to say Colorado, but I'm so sorry if that's wrong. Everybody who works at Cummins, um, but uh, I think there's you know there's opportunities to travel there and you know see the parts that you've made and assemble them yourself uh, to to just get a better feel, right? Because as a design engineer, if you don't understand how um, how like uh, I'm totally blanking on what that job is called. Uh, um, I guess how a technician would put it together for, for lack of a better term. But, you know, if you don't understand how a technician is going to put it together, then, you know, you're not doing your job. Josh, I always like ending the interview with the opportunity for the guests to give tips for success. What would you tell current Wildcats? Oh, get involved. Um, do do everything that you think you can do and then do like one extra thing. Um, 
because I find that uh, having too many commitments is sometimes good in a weird way. Uh, it forces you to um, weigh your options and and co- really like cost benefit analysis of what what is most important to me. And I think that helped me discover, you know, personally what I value and what I what I think is important in life um, from just getting involved and doing as many things as I possibly could. This has been so interesting. I, I just, I, I, I just love hearing how you process information and how you're able to then apply that to what you do. I, I learned a ton today. So this was, this was great. So thank you so much and best of luck. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Thanks for listening. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. As always, find past and future episodes on Apple or Google Podcasts or any other platform. Just search WeGo Vox. That's WeGo V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook at WeGo Places Podcast or on Twitter at WeGo Places. 